0: Israel, the Lord your God is one, is our reading for today from the book of Deuteronomy. And it was this time people who, who helped me pastor often say, if something's a value, you have to say it more than once. And one of the values we have at Defiance Church is that we hear the word read aloud uninterrupted, that we spend this time hearing from the scriptures. And so I'm going to read. Deuteronomy 6 for us this morning, which contains those words that we are to hear, to hearken, to listen. Deuteronomy 6. Now this is the commandment, the laws and regulations that Yahweh your God has commanded me to teach you, to observe in the land that you are crossing in to possess, in order that you may hold Yahweh your God in awe. By keeping all his laws and commandments that I command you. You and your child and your child's child all the days of your lives. In order that you may prolong your days. Yes, you are to listen, O Israel. And are to take care to observe them. And it may go well with you. That you may become exceedingly many. As Yahweh, the God of your fathers, promised to you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Here... O Israel, Yahweh our God is one. Yahweh is one. You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your substance. These are the words which I command you today are to be upon your heart. You are to repeat them with your children and you are to speak of them in your sitting in your house and in your walking in the way, in your lying down and in your rising up. You are to tie them as a sign upon your hand, and they are to be bands between your eyes. You are to write them upon the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now it shall be when Yahweh, your God, brings you to the land that he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you, towns great and good that you did not build, houses full of every good thing that you did not fill, cisterns hewn that you did not hew, Vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant, and you eat and you are satisfied. Take care lest you forget Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of a house of slavery. Yahweh, your God, you are to hold in awe. Him you are to serve by His name you are to swear. You're not to walk after other gods, for other gods of peoples, for the other gods of the peoples around you. For a zealous God is your Lord. Your, your God in your midst, lest the anger of Yahweh your God flare up against you and he destroy you from the face of the soil. You're not to test Yahweh your God as you tested him at Manasseh testing. Keep, yes, the commandments of Yahweh your God and his precepts and his laws that he commanded you. You are to do what is right and you are to do what is good in the eyes of the Lord in order that it may go well with you so that you may come to take possession of the good land that Yahweh swore to your fathers to push out all your enemies before you as Yahweh has promised. And when your child asks you on the day saying, what what does it mean that the laws and regulations that Yahweh our God has commanded to you? Then you are to say to them, slaves we were to Pharaoh in Egypt. And Yahweh took us out of Egypt with a strong hand. Yahweh placed his signs and portents, great and evil ones on Egypt and on Pharaoh and all his house before our eyes. And he took us out of there in order to bring us, to give us the land that he swore to our fathers. So Yahweh has commanded to to us to observe all these Yahws, to Yahweh our God in awe, to have it be well with us all our days, to come to keep us alive as this day. And the righteous merit will be considered for us when we take care to observe all this commandment before the presence of Yahweh our God as he has commanded us. The word of the Lord. Today is a, an important day in the scriptures as we get to a very important scripture Now, oftentimes, a pastor uh, can say that type of stuff, trying to convince you to take it seriously and to say, this is very important, pay attention. But it's seldom, this scripture and one others, uh, that we get to say, Jesus says that this scripture is very important. He, in the reading that Kara said, read for us, says that this is the greatest commandment. This, and to love your neighbor as yourself, are the upon which both, of these things hang, that these are the ways in which we're to understand and to read Torah and to walk with our God. It may seem incidental to you guys. I lost my sermon notes and some of you might be like, he has notes. Um, There they are. Um... And Jesus, when he answers this question of the Pharisee in the book of Matthew, is doing, I think, several things for us and commending this passage to us. The first is Jesus is one who has heard these words in the morning, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, in both the morning and the evening every day. It's It's something that's been in pattern upon his life. It's also true that if you were a first-century hearer, the Pharisee or the rabbi, when you heard this answer from Jesus, you would not have been shocked. It would have been common to answer, which is these of the greatest commandments, with this one. That's not to say there weren't other answers at the time, but this is one that many rabbis would have selected. And what it shows, I think, for us as Christians today is that Jesus is one who stands much more in continuity Uh, in in line with what God has done through Israel, then he stands apart. He stands in that line. And so oftentimes we we break these down into, and last week we talked a little bit about moralistic therapeutic deism, my favorite enemy of sorts. Um, And we break these lines down into this moralistic, we're just supposed to love God and to love others. But the ancient hearers wouldn't have heard just those lines. From the Shema, they would have heard the story of a God who rescues them, as we heard, as we read through that passage. When your kids ask, why do we do these things, you tell them that we were slaves in Egypt. We might be able to shorten these texts because they're so unfamiliar to us to say, oh, um, it just means love God, but in fact, they come embedded from with a narrative story and structure and form that gives much more life and fullness to them. And if we hear them in that way, they don't get smaller, but they expand into greater precepts. So to say, well, God, Christians are just supposed to love God and love their neighbor shortens the story. But I think what Jesus is doing is widening it for us. By answering with this, he could have invented a new law. After all, he is God. Um, but he chooses, and this has to do with fidelity and the oneness of God, to remain in that same place and same story. Those of you who were here when we went through the book of Leviticus, one of my favorite responses was, uh, Christians are just supposed to love other people. Why do they get so much hung up on these um, uh esoteric laws and regulations, they're just supposed to love others, not realizing that the command to love others comes from the book of all the esoteric laws and regulations. comes from the book of Leviticus, that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And I don't think it's an accident that Jesus is bringing us back to the Torah, to these five books to sort of direct us as Christians in the way of life and to speak the word of healing to Israel. And so this week, we hear the greatest commandment. Incidentally, we also hear passages that Jesus pulls from when he um, is tempted by the devil in the wilderness in the Gospel of Luke and Matthew. Jesus pulls from Deuteronomy when he wants to um, deal with the devil, which should be another suggestion to us that there's more here for us. And so this sort of makes up um, what people would call, there's, there's often a phrase, as I've been studying the book of Deuteronomy, that it makes up the center of the Torah, which it does not. But it makes up the center of the Torah in, in character and sense. And if it's true that it makes up the center of the Torah, the center of the book of Deuteronomy is these verses, in, or is chapter 6. Chapters 1 through 4 have been primarily recounting the history of Israel. Chapter 5 brings us back to the Ten Commandments and that moment at Sinai, another historical. And the first words that Moses echoes to Israel that are, in some sense, new words. I don't know if that's the right phrase. (laughs) In some sense, words that haven't been said yet are these words that make up the Shema. It's as if Moses is finally saying what he wanted to say after he did the preliminary work. And it's upon these things what Jesus says everything else hangs. I think they become lenses for us to be able to read and see things. And Jesus, in this sense, takes on the role of the prophet in, in the book, is that he's commending a, a recommendation to the Torah. It's often when prophets come Uh, In the last part of the Old Testament, that they are correcting abuses and mistakes and errors in the way, not making anything new. That that's the the way in which they heal the people is by bringing them back to these words. And so it is with Jesus as well. Last week, we tried to set the Ten Commandments in this frame of to say that if you've been rescued from Egypt— then these things might make sense to you. But if you still sit in slavery, the commands to treat your neighbor with respect and to have reverence for God don't quite make as much sense. That, I thought, tackled some of the moralistic of moralistic therapeutic deism and some of the deism as well. But this week we get a text that very clearly enumerates for us that this is the one God who rescued you from Egypt, whom primarily you should give all your allegiance to or is asking for all your allegiance. And this God is jealous of those other things which you might chase after. That this one eliminates for us to say, well, we all just worship the same God. How many of you have heard that? I feel like I heard it this week from a friend, uh, not a Christian friend, um, but another friend who said, well, it's all just the same God, and I often struggle to answer that question in a way that does them honor Um without shortcutting to say, well, that's a really weird thing to say. Um, This text directly confronts that, though. It's almost as we talked about last week, that Deuteronomy isn't so much monotheistic in the way that it says there are no other gods. I believe that's in a development out of the book of Deuteronomy, and it shows up in other portions of the Old Testament. But Deuteronomy seems to say, while there might be other gods, they're not available to you. Your fidelity is only to this God, to this one. And that challenge, I think, shortcuts us the ability to say, well, they're all just the same. There are other ones, but they're not all the same. And this one has a particular command upon your life. So today's scripture begins with the word Shema, which is many people are familiar with that this is the Shema in verse 4. This is here, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And the Shema, I think, for us, calls attention to two things. One which is hear, listen, pay attention are all ways in which these are, are translated throughout the Old Testament. But it says is that this comes to us as an external word. I was studying for this week, and, and there's somebody was asking me what St. Augustine got right and what St. Augustine got wrong. And one of the battles he had, which doesn't quite show up in the confessions, is this one with the Pelagians. And the Pelagians, we don't know as much about as we should, but it seems to say that they think we can be healed from within our own senses and reasons. Not here, Israel, Israel but find within yourself the strength to reason. The answer is within, is sort of the Pelagian's response. And yet Israel is taught that salvation comes from the exterior. Hear, O Israel. It's a word that is not within us, but without us. One of the phrases I use often, which is why we don't do a lot of application at the Fine Church in our sermons, is from Tim Keller who said, Um, The gospel first comes to us as news before it's advice. And it's for us today, I think, the challenge is to hear that news before we make it into advice. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. It's the first word that comes from the outside, and it is the gospel, too, that comes outside of us. We are to hear, not speak, which is a challenge for us in many ways today. To hear and to rise up. And Jesus is the one who calls us to hear again. The second is, hear, O Israel. This is a summons to a people. Not hear, all you people, the Lord your God is one. But here, you who have been rescued by this one, who have been brought out by this one, the Lord your God is one. We often, in the church, sometimes try to make the gospel advice for everyone before we make it advice for ourselves. But what the book Deuteronomy is doing, which I've tried to stress several times, is constituting a people where there was no people a people who will have forms and patterns in a life in the world that is different from the cultures that surround them. We, as Christians, often reduce this to an individual if we do it at all. But I think what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount, as we've said, when he calls the disciples forward, is constituting the new people of Israel in some ways, or a renewed people of Israel, however you want to look at it. There's a reason why there's 12 of them, and there are 12 tribes of Israel calls them forward at the start of that, and gives them an ethic again. And not only that, he oftentimes will say, you have heard it said, Torah, most often, but I say to you. And Jesus gives this to a new people. That the church, and this is one of the hardest, I think, things for us in the modern world, is to be a people— who know one another, who care for each other, who constitute an identity in the world is perhaps one of our greatest challenges. We get it sometimes on an individual level. But what does it mean for a church to be a body with one another, and one another's make up quite a bit of the New Testament, in the world? To know each other, to share with one another, and then to have an ethic so that the world around it goes, what's up with those people? Or as the New Testament puts it, to be given account for the joy that is within us. That we have a difference to make in the world, and it's a difference that only we can make by worshiping and returning to the ethic that God has given us. By going to that place. This is the challenge of the first part. Hear, O Israel. But it continues that the Lord your God is one. Or that you are to be loyal to the Lord your God. Or sorry, uh, the Lord your God is one. Uh, th- there's another way in which it can be translated as the Alone. So there's two things going on, and depending on how you translate this passage, and I think both are interesting to think about for a moment. The one is that we often hear is that the Lord your God is one. The second is that the Lord is your God alone. One is, again sort of jealousy, and the one is about this sort of oneness that constitutes this world. And what I want to talk about first is the alone one. This is the Lord your God alone is we've talked a lot about idolatry and jealousy in the last couple of sermons. And what the Israel seems to be tempted by, and it goes through this in the Shema, is to run after the gods of other nations that surround them. They want to run after these gods, and there's, s- there's several reasons for that. One is, it might be easier to have other gods than this god. Um, certainly, you might think it's safer. Even the book of Hebrews, I think, suggests it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of this god. Um, and so it might be safer, There might be a way in which you have to navigate politics in the world and you have to agree to to sort of acquiesce to another god to save yourself. That seems to be a temptation that Israel falls. And then there's another one in which the other gods aren't gods of fidelity and trust. The other gods don't seem to mind if you dabble in other gods' business. They seem to play better with others than our God does. And so people can chase after these gods and try to find a different pattern and way in the world. And while we have eliminated, uh, there was a, a slide from the book of, when we went through the book of Ephesians where I suggested that uh, I think it's Artemis is the local god in Ephesus, or it was when we were going through the book of Acts, and I put up that that Artemis is like a combination, if you're from New York, uh, the New York Yankees, um, uh, Wall Street, the bull, I had a picture of, and Marilyn Monroe. It's uh, it's an image of sexuality, of entertainment and sports, and it's an image of financial power, right? Uh, to hide the fact that we deal with idolatrous other gods, we've just divided them up into different realms. Well, if it's just the Yankees, it's not so bad. And notice I'm picking on the Yankees. Um, uh, not the Cubs. That's right, Shelley. Um, uh, is that is that we've divided them so it doesn't look as obvious that they're gods. But for Ephesus, it was obvious that this one god is how our city and town is doing. In our world, Wall Street is how we are doing. And I love that that the image for that is that big bowl, because it's almost like we have that god, too sits at the corner of wall and something. We make other gods to chase in the world. We, we take away um, their deity in some ways, but leave them with more power, which is a scary thing to think about. Um, they become powerful in the sense because we don't see them as beings anymore, which gives them more ways to grasp and to grapple with us than we can imagine. And we strip them of that identity. And so it is that this God commands that we have this God as our loyal God alone. That it is in this aloneness that we will not be drawn into the love of other gods. But the second is to say that the Lord is one, is one that also has lost somewhat favor in the modern world. And what it is to say is that the one who receives allegiance is faithful, consistent, and not divided. The reality of God is wholly confirmable with all moments. See, what happens with other gods throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament is that they are fickle gods. They can run off and start new projects and new things. They're not bound to fidelity themselves. And Christians, I think, because we've lost this notion of the oneness of God, think that God can go off and start other things. And perhaps we are the receivers of that. Hampton and I were talking about the book of Romans before church today. This is one of the things that Paul is working to heal both for himself and for the Gentile Christians, for Israel and the Gentile Christians, that God is faithful in all circumstances. What he did in Jesus Christ is part of his oneness, not part of a new game plan, a new strategy. He doesn't cut off faithfulness. And one of the things that you could logically deduce from this, if God were able to change his faithfulness, then what's to say this path doesn't run out? The church had a good run at it. They did not bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. So I'll try again with these new people. It's very dangerous for us to go down that path because we can then begin to think, what if God has moved on from us? It is God's faithfulness and oneness that pronounces his fidelity unto us. There's this um, line from the book of Jeremiah that they will be my people and I will be their God. I will give them singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me and I will go well for them and for their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will not stop producing good to them, and I will retire to them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. But then it ends. I will rejoice in doing them good and will, assuredly and will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and soul. God's marriage to us, God's fidelity to us can't be changed on his side and his oneness, nor can it be changed on ours. We often think the everlasting covenant is, is, is good for us in, in ways in which God, we can keep it or not keep it. But the fact of the matter is God is keeping that everlasting covenant. And so to say that the Lord your God is one is to say this one of allegiance that we play, uh, p- we go to is not one who is finicky and changes and moves throughout the world in ways that's moving on and moving beyond us, but is one who is pledged to us. God is one who doesn't leave or abandon us, doesn't move on the way that we would think that a God would, but is more faithful than that. And that Proverbs passage ended with um, the same thing that God asked from us in the second half of the Shema. You are, be are to to love the Lord your God with all your mind, with all your strength, and with all your being. I um, messed that up because I have seven different translations up here, considering the one I also have down there. Um, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Um, there's a Ways in which God is laying that upon Himself, and that Jeremiah reads, and I will plant them with all my heart and with all my soul. the The fidelity of oneness that God is asking us to have towards God is also the same fidelity and oneness that God um, has towards us, which is not one we often think about. And so it is here that we find that God is asking us to place these on our heart that we are to love the Lord our God with our entire mind, with our entire strength, and with our entire soul, that we are supposed to call on this God. Love the Lord your God is is sort of a new sentiment here. We often, because of Jesus' selection of the great commandment, think it's natural to love God. But in much of the Old Testament to this point, and in much of the relationship to other gods, it's not exactly necessary that you love them. Um, it seems natural to us that it would be that way, but this is a sort of a new sort of thing emerging in Deuteronomy, that you are to love the Lord your God with all your, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, that you are to give to this one. And What I think that this scripture is asking of us is to have this sort of full congruence with our ways in which God is. Now, one of the things when I was a youth minister that they pointed out, and I think it's true more than all of us, and no, this isn't another portion on moralistic therapeutic deism, um, was that that youth today, um, they live with multiple different candles. You can see sort of four on this table burning, multiple wicks sort of going. And what they learn from parents and mentors is this is church, this is athletics, this is school. Um, and this is dating and whatever, is that they learn from them that they become very realm-specific. In school, I'm supposed to be this way. At home, I'm supposed to be this way. At church, I'm meant to live in this way. And, and what happens is, is they become what they they. S- What researchers begin to talk about is they suffer from a multi-personality disorder in some sense because parents are consistently changing that. And not only that, if you think about athletics for a moment, is the morals that many kids are receiving from their coaches on athletics, crush them and don't worry about them, just go forward, are not the morals they're supposed to have at home being the best student succeeding there so that you can succeed all your life often takes a shortcut to not having to be as moral there either. It's about getting the best grade and moving up through these things. And so what happened is when they suggested this to, to pastors, they said, oh, I see. The challenge is to get them to have one candle all over again. And they said, that is a noble and true goal, but, the, but it seems very hard to do. And so what they said is perhaps the church's role is to give them um, a space in which they live into the one identity in each of the realms that they're being pulled into, that they can move in that way. To love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their strength is one that travels with them from different realms trying to ramp up the church realm to conquer the rest of them seemed like not a great idea for people who suffer from a multi-personality disorder already. But what they suggested to them is that perhaps what you could do is give them a way of living into one sort of body and space, and that might bring about the unity that you hope for. And so it is that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our strength and that this is to sort of bring congruence to our life, to bring a way of being in the world. This quote from Eugene Peterson, this is a quote that was meant for oneness. (laughs) Uh, This quote from Eugene Peterson on the back of the bulletin, Christian spirituality means living in the mature wholeness of the gospel. It means taking all the elements of your life, children, spouse, job, weather, possessions, relationships, and experiencing them as an act of faith. It's in this way we can begin to sort of transform ourselves into ones who can love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our strength and the oneness and fidelity that God has for us. In these words, I'm ordering you today. You should drive them home to your children, is one the way one translation puts it. You're to impress them on your children. The impress is is probably better as a drive home to their children, and you're supposed to talk about them as you get up, as you. Um, as they live in your hearts, you're supposed to impress them on your children. You're supposed to talk about them on the way, when you sit, when you walk, when you lay down, when you rise. They're supposed to be things that you tie as symbols on you, to write them on your door frames. What they are to become is, is habits and relations that form us. They're supposed to press us beyond in some ways. They're supposed to move us further into the world or into into this relationship. And and this is, I think, one of the things that we often miss today. There's Kelly and I, uh, somebody made us a sign with a scripture verse on the back of our house, or to put on our house, and I was like, that seems like how could I be cool if I put that up? Um, it wasn't so much that either. It was kind of the verse that they had chosen. But it was more along the lines of that there's this way in which we oftentimes think of spirituality as a private thing in the modern world. And what God wants you to do is to wear it, to have it greet you when you arrive at home, to be the word that you read when you leave from home. to be bound on yourself. When we talk about how we form kids at Defiance Church into the faith, and when we talk about that as Christians, it's it's weird because my kids uh, they talk a lot, but we're not at at much of a level yet. But we talk about everything. Um, we talk about questions about life. We talk about questions about why is the water blue here and not green, and why is this going on? And we talk about all sorts of things. And when I begin to think about, oh, how am I going to form them into the faith, I think I need a whole other pattern and program to do that. And yet what Deuteronomy holds out for us is just talk about them. Talk about these commands and these stories when you get up. When you sit down, when you walk and rise, tie them as symbols upon you. And it's, it's this thing in the modern world that many of the kids that I used to work with knew more about their parents' political persuasions than they did what they thought about the Shema in the book of Deuteronomy, um, which is to say that we talk about a lot of things that matter in our households, but do we talk about the thing that is the one in which we don't share loyalty with anything else? We talk and talk and talk. I hope that my kids become Chicago Cubs fans through talking about the baseball season together. And what becomes apparent is the challenge for us is to reclaim talking about the faith. We have programs. We have things we can use to aid us along the way. But the fact is, it's just the parents talking with their kids that is the Old Testament's discipleship program to raise kids in the faith. There's no magic to it. When you sit down, when you get up, when you rise, when you walk, talk about these words. And so it is for us today to find ways to bind these to our heart to wear them in a sense, and to put them on our doorposts, and to bring this command into our lives so that we can live in congruence with the God who saved us and loved us, to bring these habits home. Let us pray. God, you ask us to listen.